Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for December 14th, 2017. On today's show, we're going to be jumping into a bunch of news, including the big news that Disney has acquired 20th Century Fox, and we'll discuss everything you need to know about that acquisition. Uh, we're going to be talking about a 48 Hours remake coming from Good Time Directors, a Killer Be Killed movie coming from the director of John Wick, Annihilation Creative Clashes, and we'll talk to the creature designer, Neil Scanlon, on how the Porgs were created. The most important story today, obviously. Uh, <laughs> this is Peter Sordan. Joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film e- editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. And Slash Film senior writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? I think it's been a while that it's been just uh, us three on this podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so, so why don't you guys join me to, by by the water cooler before we get into the news? Let's, let's talk about what what has been going on recently. Uh, let, let's start with Ben because Ben, you went and visited the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. I did, yeah. For uh, today, actually, is my wife and I's uh, fourth wedding anniversary, and um, congratulations! We d- thanks. Yeah, it's cool. So we we decided that uh, we wanted to um, go to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. We've never been before, even though we only live like ten minutes away from Universal Studios in Hollywood. Um, we've been to Universal, but we had just never been uh, to that part of the park. Um, I guess it. What I don't think it was open the last time that we went there. I think it opened um, like maybe two years ago. At this point. Yeah, so we we probably went like three years ago or something. But uh, yeah, it, I mean, it it's so cool. I'm, I'm sure you guys have been um, being since both of you are like the big theme park nerds uh, on Slash Film. So I'm sure you know all about it. And I don't need to like go, you know, bore anyone with the details. But I would just say if you have not been, it's definitely worth going and checking out, um, especially during Christmas time, because they have like all these different decorations and the lights and the snow and the whole deal. I mean, it's it's really like they they sort of went all out and. And um, there's a light show that's on the side of Hogwarts that's Christmas themed that was very cool. Um, I'm still 
not sure exactly how they managed to do that because it, it almost looks 3D and there's like projections and all sorts of stuff that's like it, it just yep. goes straight on the side of the castle and the tech behind that is really fascinating. I don't know how any of it works, but it looks really cool. Yeah, at, at times uh, it looks like you can see through the castle. Like it, it is, you know, I've seen projection mapping shows before, but this has been uh, the best done thing I've seen thus far. Yeah, yeah, it's really awesome. So, um, uh, you know, we were talking about neither one of us grew up reading the Harry Potter books. We've we've seen all the movies and my wife has read all the books. I haven't read any of them yet. But um, but we were just talking, you know, walking through the middle of all these locations and just uh, sort of marveling at how well it was all put together and just saying if we had grown up reading those books, if we were, you know, kids who uh, this was, you know, your favorite property, your favorite fictional property how going to this place would be hands down the best day of your life. You know, it'd be the best thing that you'd ever done because it's just so well realized. So uh, very cool stuff. Basically, you're saying what what it's going to be like when I first step into uh, Star Wars land. When that yes. Happens. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, what have I been up to recently? I haven't been up to much. Uh, I have, uh, you, you know, I, I have talked on the po- uh, podcast in the past how I became a member of the Magic Castle. I uh, conquered my fears by, you know, auditioning in front of a group of master magicians. And I, I've even mentioned how in, in the past while giving tours, I, I somehow uh, got suckered into uh, performing magic for, you know, a group of a dozen people I didn't know. Uh you know, I've been pushing myself, guys. I've going to the castle every week. Uh, I've been making it a point to try to uh, perform. Uh, it, they have impromptu areas of the Magic Castle where you can perform for you know people guests that are there. Uh, it's not like a scheduled show or anything. Uh, you know, those are the guys that actually get paid and are you know amazing. Um, you know, I do, but they have like these impromptu areas where the members, magician members, can perform uh for you know people that are just wandering through the castle and i've uh i've been pushing myself more to like do performances uh i a few weeks ago i had probably one of the most embarrassing things that could possibly happen uh to you happen where i was performing a trick that went horribly wrong during the trick like like as wrong as you could possibly go and and um usually in magic like good magicians things go wrong all the time even with good magicians but they have uh, a thing they have a thing called outs which i hope i'm not exposing too much here but like you know if something goes wrong that they have a plan for it and they have a way of you know if they didn't get your card you know your card magically appeared in their pocket or in the shoe or you know they make some kind of other magical thing happen and it almost seems like it's part of the show that they messed up do you know what i mean mm-hmm. uh but i uh, i was performing this trick um admittedly with uh, a gimmicked deck of cards uh and i there was no in my mind, there was no foreseeable way of me having an out for the trick, and I, I basically just had to be like, bow my head in shame and be like, "Okay, guys, I messed up." <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, it, it, it was it was crushing. Thankfully, I was able to perform two more tricks for them, and everybody was like, "Don't worry about that mess up." Those tricks totally like you know blew our mind. Uh, but since then, I've had a bunch of performances there that uh, have gone smoothly, and now I just got to get to the point of a. Uh, I'm still doing magic tricks, and I I don't have a routine or a uh, a um 
you know, a, a, a set of tricks that kind of link to each other. It's not like a, you know, I have an opener and a, uh, an ender. I, I, I had to come up with that. Right now, it, it's still just me uh, performing a series of, of, of magic tricks. So, uh, uh, but I'm having fun doing it. And it's uh, it's such a rush to uh, to do that for people you don't know. Because people you know, you know, it, it's easy to, to, I think, perform the stuff. But, um and it's uh, it's a learning experience. I now know with that trick that I I, I did mess up. <laughs> uh, I know how to make that never happen again. And if that you know, I have three different outs uh, planned if that were to happen. So uh, yeah, so it, it's a learning experience. I'm having a lot of fun uh, doing it. Uh, Jacob, what have you been up to? Uh, well, last night my wife and I were sitting around the house, bored, talking about what to do. And we said, want to celebrate Christmas? We then realized, oh, it's December 13th. And we said, oh, we're adults. Rules don't matter anymore. Let us celebrate Christmas. So we did. <laughs> we went and we got dinner, went to the Trail of Lights in Austin, which is a big Christmas lights display, came home and opened gifts. And that's where I learned that's what being an adult is. It means being able to dis- disregard when Christmas is and have Christmas on your own terms. And it was great because uh, we're traveling during Christmas, visiting my family in San Antonio uh, her family in Dallas, and just a total mess of not being able to actually enjoy each other and enjoy each other's presence on Christmas. We're just too busy uh, getting in and out of cars and trying to make sure that things don't burn down as I talk to in-laws. <laughs> so it, it was really satisfying and fun to just ha- enjoy the season on our own terms. Uh, but in addition to that, um, most of my hours recently have been spent playing the new video game Wolfenstein 2, The New Colossus. And it's a uh, first-person shooter video game, a sequel to um, Wolfenstein The New Order. And I'm not always a big first-person shooter fan. This is a game Wait, wait, people... so th- this is a yeah. sequel to that game that I played probably 30 years ago? Okay, it gets confusing because uh, the last game, um, The New Order, was a reboot of the Wolfenstein games. Ah. That, um, for those of you who don't know, um, Wolfenstein series uh, began as a World War II-adjacent uh, series, but you battling evil Nazis and with robots and technology and all kinds of like sort of sci-fi infused World War II stuff. And in the new games, the action has moved to the 60s and takes place after the world has lost World War II against the Nazis and Germany rules the entire known world. And Wolfenstein 2 is your character from the previous game uh, continuing the fight of being part of this um, resistance cell trying to liberate um, this time America. It was, it was Germany in the first game. Uh, and essentially killing lots and lots of Nazis. And I'm not always a big first-person shooter fan. This is games, for those of you who don't know, where you are seeing the game from the perspective of the player you're inhabiting. So, like, your gun is in the right-hand corner of the screen, and you're shooting lots and lots of bad guys. Uh, and Wolfenstein 2 doesn't play as well as I wish it did. Like, I think Bungie, for example, who make Destiny and made the first Halo games, have this kind of gameplay down to a science. But I never actually enjoyed the stories and worlds of those games, even though they played so tight. Whereas Wolfenstein 2... I am playing on easy mode and just going through the action as fast as I can because I'm enjoying the story and the world so much. This alternate history at the 60s is terrifying. Like, there's this entire sequence, I don't want to spoil too much, where you visit a small American town, which is having a celebration parade in honor of the day when Nazis took over the United States. And you see, like, Ku Klux Klan members being taught German by a, by a Nazi soldier. Uh, and it's out, out in the open. And it's wearing its politics on sleeve. And in 2017, a game that's like acknowledging, hey, 
there are Nazis here. Go shoot them a lot. <laughs> it, it feels really cathartic. And, and in addition to being this really well-realized and terrifying world. And I'm really moved by um, the basic gist of, of, of your character and the core story, which is all these people who have different political backgrounds, different nationalities, different, come from different races. They all believe in different things politically. Like some are hardcore socialists and some are more center in their politics, but all of them have come together because they believe that Nazis need to be stopped. And it's so, so it's a video game with a really, really pointed and profound and well articulated political point of view, which you don't see in a lot of games, let alone shooters in a year where the new call of duty game went back to world war two but then drained all the politics out of it and just said, hey, here's a fight, as opposed to saying, hey, here's a war over ideals we should be thinking about. It's really satisfying, and I'm, I really recommend it if you like story-driven games. Nice. Very cool. Uh, okay, let's jump into the news, because there has been a bit of big news going on today. Aside from Star Wars The Last Jedi hitting theaters, Disney has finished or has announced their acquisition of 20th Century Fox uh, you know, in a landmark deal, they now own uh, everything I love. Uh, it's uh, pretty big news because, uh, I mean, <laughs> they, they own everything. Like they're going to, you know, the uh, well, actually, we're going to get into it, Jacob, because Jacob uh, HT did a great write up for the site rounding up everything we needed to know about this deal. And I, I think we should probably just go through that. So, uh, w- Jacob, what does Disney get in this deal? Oh, man. Uh, first of all, I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version of this. Uh, Y-Tran Bui, our writer who cannot be here because she's too busy seeing Star Wars, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, wrote this comprehensive article that's in the show notes. So if you want more after this, I really recommend reading it. But uh, what Disney gets um, for their $52.4 billion dollars, is 20th Century Fox, the film studio, Fox Searchlight, uh, the FX and National Geographic channels, Fox's regional sports networks, as well as the majority ownership of Hulu. Uh, so that means everything from Alien to Predator to X-Men to uh, Ice Age is now in the Disney stable. And it's, it's oh, and that includes like The Simpsons and Family Guy. All these shows uh, that have been Fox staples for years are now owned by Disney. And it's kind of insane. Okay, so what does this mean for Fantastic Four going to Disney? Well, last week there were these stories going around the internet about the uh, the, the rights to Fantastic Four possibly not being with Fox because there's a very confusing and complex history with who owns those movies. But in Disney's press release, uh, they confirmed that the X-Men, Fantastic Four, and Deadpool will be with the Marvel family under one roof, to quote their uh, press release. So that even though there was a lot of head scratching over that a few days ago, it's, it's, it's a done deal. Fantastic four are now part of the Disney umbrella, which yeah, means the X-Men are probably going to meet the Avengers very soon. I've been joking. I was joking for the podcast with Peter that um, I put money on us seeing an MCU X-Men movie by 2020. It's, it's I, I feel like maybe Peter, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's been all this talk about movies not being announced uh, after Avengers four, after the infinity war follow-up. And part of me is wondering if that's because they've been wanting to see if they get the X Men before they announce their next lineup of movies. That's so. I, I we won't. I what I'm wondering is we have Deadpool, we have New Mutants, we have Dark Phoenix. If Disney's going to try to say, hey, let's try to backdoor these into the MCU, or if it's going to say, yeah, forget those and just start fresh with a new Wolverine and new Professor X. 
if you're a superhero fan, it's a lot to think about. A lot of interesting things going on here. Yeah. Well, we, we do know that Hugh Jackman has said that he, even if this deal went through, which it seems like it's going to, uh, that he's not going to return as Wolverine. I, I guess the big question is, would do you think they are going to integrate the current X-Men as we have it in Fox uh, into the MCU? Or, or even are they going to have to reintroduce the Fantastic Four again? I think they definitely introduced Fantastic Four. They start fresh because that last movie was such a disaster. And I have a lot of mixed feelings on this deal, most of them negative, as we'll get to later in this conversation. Uh, but the idea of the people who have had so much luck with the rest of the Marvel movies getting to the Fantastic Four, which is a very tricky group of characters who are really rewarding when done well, it I think we're going to see them done right and done well and done completely from scratch. X-Men I'm very curious about because I feel like I don't think Disney would want to waste New Mutants or waste Deadpool 2. I think they're going to try to find a way to maybe carefully ease the elements they like into the MCU, but I'm prepared to be wrong. I mean, I don't know what's going on um, beyond what's in the public eye right now. Okay, so, you know, they are doing Deadpool. They are doing R-rated uh, Fox movies. What What is going to happen to those? Uh, yeah, uh, Disney CEO Bob Iger addressed this directly on a call with investors today. Uh, I'm going to quote him real quick. Uh, Deadpool clearly has been and will be Marvel branded, but we think there might be an opportunity for a Marvel R brand for something like Deadpool. And as long as you let audiences know what's coming, we think we can manage fine. So he's suggesting, yeah, we're going to release Deadpool 2 unaltered and we may keep our door open to future Marvel R-rated movies, which is a big change because the MCU, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of these movies, I've always been sort of sanitized and regulated even when they are allowed to do some fun silly things it's it's always kept to a, on a certain family-friendly level so i'm curious to see if this is just bob Iger covering for deadpool because he knows he's gonna make a lot of money or if there actually are plans to say hey this character deserves an r rating because logan in addition to deadpool did great box office got killer reviews so i'm i remain curious i'm not convinced we see more r-rated superhero movies made by disney after deadpool 2 uh but it's being addressed. I, I'm just not sure I believe it. What is? What does Fox get to keep in this deal? Uh, Fox is going to retain the Fox Broadcasting Network and stations, uh, the Fox News Channel, Fox Business Network, FS1, FS2, the Big Ten Network. But they're all going to be consolidated as a newly listed independent company. And it's probably going to be called New Fox, which is what all the early reports indicate. So, um, which is kind of, which is Rupert, kind of weird, yeah. too, because like, you yeah, it think is weird. that they would want if, – if Disney is going to keep 20th Century Fox, you'd think that they would want to rebrand all those things as something that doesn't have Fox in the name. My guess is that Rupert Murdoch doesn't want to give up the Fox News name because that, that, that name carries a lot of weight, unfortunately. And I feel like changing that name would be a branding crisis for him and his many billions of dollars. But – yeah, as you can see, Fox is essentially doubling down on sports and news. Uh, if it's not sports and news, Disney has it at this point. That's a good way to keep it in mind. And even then, Disney has some sports things. It's it's a, it's huge. It's gigantic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in our podcast last week, we 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 kind of were worried what's going to happen to the historic Fox lot in in uh, in, in L.A. What what is going to happen? I know that a lot of people were worried about this even today because. Uh, the value of that land is estimated to be in the tens of billions of dollars because of its location. But uh, Disney will be leasing uh, leasing the Fox Studio lot for seven years as part of the acquisition. So for at least seven years, the lot will be in use. It won't be torn down and turned into condos, which was a big fear. 
Um, I'm really hoping that Disney finds a way to maybe hold on to it longer because as a, uh, I don't know, uh, as someone who lives in Austin, a city that's being transformed into condos, like every cool restaurant, every historic place, you turn around, it's gone, it's a condo. And I see that happening around me all day, every day, and it just bums me the F out. It really, really bothers me. And so the, I'm really hoping that the Foxy lot stays open so that people can there can have jobs so that those studio spaces can be used to make more great movies, and so that a place that's quite frankly historic can be preserved, because I'm tired of American history being wiped over to build condos. It's disgusting, and it's happening everywhere. Okay, one one thing that really worries me about this deal is that, you know, reportedly it, w- it was bought in a lot of stock, so now Rupert Murdoch is the largest stockholder in Disney? Uh, I've seen that being said around. Uh, it's not listed specifically in our write-up that uh, Ytran did. So um, I, what we can tell you is that uh, Fox investors own 25% of Disney, uh, and Rupert Murdoch does own a substantial percentage. Uh, but he has apparently expressed no interest in being a part of the company. He will not be offered a seat on the board, and he's going to be focusing on his new company. Um, so... That was my fear too, because Disney, for all of the things it does wrong, uh, has, does a lot right when it comes to like making movies I think are uh, ethical and socially progressive and come from the right place in, in the heart. Um, this, I guess Frozen is a random example of a movie that I feel um, represents New Disney, a very successful juggernaut franchise that's also about treating people with respect and accepting people for their differences. That's the kind of Disney that we've been seeing over the past few years, in which Murdoch does not stand for. But if all the early word is an indication, he's just essentially going to take his money and run and hopefully won't have any actual say moving forward and won't have a position at the company itself. Okay, we got to jump ahead here. How is this going to affect the rest of the media slash entertainment industry? Well, uh, Disney's going to uh, dominate about one third of the entertainment industry. Um, naturally, a lot of other rival studios are <laughs> trying to wonder how they can battle this because Disney was a huge number one in, in in box office last year, beating out Warner Brothers by, I think it was a billion dollars. It's it's insane. And so that has a lot of studios scrambling. Does this mean like, as every other smaller studio want to be eaten by a bigger studio? Does it mean Paramount and Universal have conversations about merging? It's, 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 it's a wild west out there now. And the big worry here is that as more and more of these studios, maybe start worrying about the future and start worrying about competing with, Disney and Fox, and they start merging or buying smaller production companies and buying smaller studios, that the already near-extinct mid-budget movie starts becoming close to a death. So that's right now the, the big fear, is just that instead of there being seven or eight major competitors in Hollywood, there'll be two or three. And that's that's the... and that Nobody wants it. It's not good for anybody. And that's the really scary part about this is, yeah, we talk about superheroes all day long. We talk about how cool it is for Deadpool to show up and say hi to Iron Man. Yeah, that would be pretty cool. I would enjoy that. But we're looking at a move that's going to shake how people make movies and where they make them. And that's and when there are fewer options and one company pulling one third of the strings in town, it's, it's frightening. And everybody's freaking out accordingly. And uh, we're we're gonna go. Th- this episode is gonna, gonna be long, but I one last thing I wanted to to ask you about. A lot of people aren't talking about this, but uh, you know, I live in Hollywood, and a lot of people I know work at these studios. What is this gonna mean for their jobs? Like, you know, are people gonna lose their jobs? Yeah. Uh, short answer: Yes. 
uh, long answer from Disney's press release that tries to put a positive spin on the worst thing. The acquisition is expected to yield at least $2 billion in cost savings from efficiencies realized through the combination of businesses. So that is really gross lawyer talk for we're firing a whole bunch of people and saving a lot of money. Uh, we do, and that means $2 billion worth of people. And that's a lot of people. And that is, that's bad. That's a steal. Yeah, you, you, we get X-Men and the Avengers. Hooray. But a lot of people are out of work. A lot of good, hardworking people. And that's not just, I feel like Peter can attest to this. Hollywood isn't just a bunch of actors and and directors like making movies and and telling stories uh, uh, and like doing the high flute and art thing you imagine movie making to be. It's a lot of people with families doing blue collar work, like working in offices, working on sets, like doing the jobs and nobody talks about. Yeah. And these are people who I think are going to be suffering, and that, that's really upsetting. Yeah, and uh, th- there's a lot more to HT's article. So if you want to know what's going to happen to Hulu, what's going to happen to, what does this mean for Disney's upcoming streaming service, uh, and much more, head over and read HT's article because it is fantastic. Um, but we must move on in the news. Uh, ben, Ben is Ben alive? He's still there. God, guys, I'm just so depressed. This <laughs> like, that, that entire conversation is so depressing to me. Yeah. No, today, you know what, guys? This is weird because today a Star Wars movie comes out. And for some reason, this this Disney nail, it should be the, like, I should be so excited about it. But it's, it's kind of depressing. You know, I should be in the fanboy side of things, of being excited of, the, you know, X-Men returning to the MCU. But, you know, all the things that Jacob's saying are are really hitting me and also this net neutrality thing could mean some bad things to uh, the world as a whole but also to us as a as a company that uh, produces content for the web which now can be controlled by however the internet companies want to uh and i should be happy that star wars is coming out today i'm kind of depressed <laughs> <laughs> um but ben okay let's let's try to move on let's talk about some other stuff um there's a 48 hours remake in the works uh from the good time directors uh what do we know about this yes so uh walter hill's 1982 action comedy 48 hours is being remade by benny and josh safety 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 i think Uh, safety okay so they are the uh the brothers the directing duo behind uh good time which is a critically acclaimed indie thriller that came out this year and uh yeah they're going to be the ones who are are making this 48 hours remake so the original movie starred uh eddie murphy and nick nolte and um Honestly, the first like gut reaction I had when I saw this was like, "Wow, I'm not sure if a good or if a, a 48 hours remake is going to work. Is really going to fly uh, in 2018, presumably, whenever it comes out, 2019 or something." Because that movie, um, while it, it did uh, arguably popularize the buddy cop genre as we know it today, um, is is uh, has some pretty um, I guess, hashtag problematic racial things in that film. I don't know if you guys have seen that movie recently, but uh, I did not grow up watching this movie. I only watched it for the first time a couple years ago. And my memory of it is, is this really sort of ugly movie that's not nearly as fun as Lethal Weapon, which is saying a lot because Lethal Weapon itself is kind of a dark, yeah. you know, has some like some mental um 
you know, an exploration of mental health and stuff like that in that movie. So uh, 48 Hours is like darker and and nastier than Lethal Weapon. Um, but and so the idea of the Safdie brothers and uh, the guy who co-wrote Good Time, Ronald Bronstein, uh, making a 48 Hours remake sort of gave me pause. But then I saw that Gerard Carmichael who is a stand-up comedian and uh, an actor, writer, producer who created The Carmichael Show on NBC is also co-writing the script with them. So that makes me feel a little bit better about it because A, uh, Gerard Carmichael is you know sort of known for pushing the envelope when it comes to like discussions of being black in America. He, he's addressed that in a lot of his stand-up routines. Um, the, the Carmichael Show itself really, you know, has tackled concepts like Black Lives Matter and, and you know, uh, gun violence and and all sorts of, you know, pl- police brutality, things like that. Uh, and then also just hiring a black guy to be a, essential in the creation of an action comedy movie is sort of like a, a revolutionary thing. Like, you know, there have been a few over the years, but uh, in large part, this has basically just been like a white guy playland um as far as action you know as far as uh, genre work goes so i'm excited that uh, gerard carmichael is involved here and i think without having seen good time but uh you know speaking with jacob who has and other people who have seen it it seems like that movie is is sort of a raw and unsettling and intense and that seems like maybe a good um a good match for uh, a modern take on 48 hours jacob do you have any thoughts on this uh, I haven't seen 48 Hours. It's, it's one of those classic movies that has escaped me. Uh, but talking to Ben uh, about what this movie, 48 Hours, actually is, I think they're a really good fit. That Good Time is essentially a 101 minute long panic attack. It is, yeah, it is intense, and it is it goes to dark places. And 48 Hours is a dark movie. Like I said, Ben speaking speak to this, I have not uh, seen it. And then they're a really interesting fit and a suggestion that maybe they're going to lean into that darkness as opposed to try to water it down. Okay, let's jump from – you know what just occurred to me while Ben was talking? I, I, I hate to go back to this Fox thing. Um, <laughs> but uh, Disney – you know, a lot of these stories are saying Disney purchased Fox to get their library of content, you know, for their upcoming streaming service. And – this is announced on the same day that this net, neutral- net neutrality thing is announced. Like, it almost seems kind of ironic that, uh, you know, they've acquired all this video comment, uh, content to stream, and now Disney's probably going to have to pay for that because of the laws that are going on t- at the same time. Well, I mean, I think Iger, like, famously served on on Trump's board at, at one point, some sort of board of advisors. I know he's since stepped down yeah, from that. Yeah, t- technology I... advisors, yeah. Yeah, I don't want to like start any conspiracies or anything like that, but um, I'm sure there are people who are analyzing that aspect of it uh, very closely. And and you may be onto something, Peter. There may be more to that that we haven't learned about yet. Yeah, uh, but let's move on uh, to another movie coming out from John Wick director. Uh, it is based on the comic book series Kill or Be Killed, which I'm a big fan of. Jacob, you're also a fan of. T- t- tell us about it. This is a tricky one because the premise of Kill or Be Killed, the comic, is spoiled right away in the Hollywood Reporter's write-up on this. It is the sentence two or three in the Wikipedia page for the movie. But I'm going to skim around what the movie's actually, or the movie slash comic's actually about because I did not know what that was when I first read it. And it blew my mind wide open when I realized but, what I was reading. But it's so, going to um, be in the trailer, right? Like, that has to yeah. be the hook of the movie. 
which is why I'm going to encourage people listening to this to go read the comic or go re- buy the first trade, which is less than $10 for the first five I, issues. I, I think you could you could uh, swerve around the details and say that it's about a, a guy that has to become a vigilante and kill bad guys. Uh, for reasons. For reasons, yeah. Yeah, uh, so I'll start there. It's about a young man who has to become a vigilante and uh, kill people for reasons that you should read the comic or wait for the trailer to find out because I'm not going to spoil it. Uh, but uh, Chad Stileski, the director, co-director of John Wick and the director of John Wick Chapter 2, has signed on to uh, adapt Kill or Be Killed. Uh, Dan Casey is writing and uh, Basil Iwanik, I hope I'm pronouncing that name correctly, is the, producing it. He also worked with uh, Stileski on... Uh, the John Wick movies. And what's cool about this is that Stileski is a uh, former stunt coordinator, a former stunt person, and he has an eye for action that you appreciate, uh, that you can appreciate as somebody who actually did a lot of action himself. He knows how to shoot it, he knows how to stage it, because he probably did a lot of stunts that were shot very poorly. <laughs> he knows uh, how uh, to capture brutal fight scenes and shootouts and fist fights with an immediacy and a style that a lot of directors just can't even touch. And what's great about Kill or Be Killed is that uh, the main character is not a John Wick-esque action hero. He is a normal guy forced to pick up a gun and pick up weapons and try to go kill bad guys. And it reminded me a lot of uh, Jeremy Saulnier's Blue Ruin from a few years ago, a thriller about a genuinely inept man trying to get revenge. He has no experience with killing people, no experience with violence, trying to struggle his way through a revenge plot. And I'm really excited to see Stileski turn away from doing these hyper-stylized, over-the-top action movies and take a skill set to think that's going to be a little more personal and desperate and brutal. Uh, I'm really excited, and I'm sure we can include a link to buy the first trade of this comic from the show notes because it, it really is a blast. And it's going to be spoiled for you um, at some point, so get out of the way now. It's worth it, I promise. Yeah, and and also at the core of the story is kind of this very interesting relationship that I have never seen in any book, movie, or TV show done done in that way before. So I I, I highly recommend it not just for this vigilante storyline, but also the the humanity of the characters at the core of this story. Uh, but let's move on to Annihilation. We've been talking a lot about the creative clashes behind the scenes. Uh, ben, we have some new word from director Alex Garland. What do we know? Yes, so Annihilation is uh, an adaptation of a science fiction sort of horror book by Jeff Vandermeer. Um, it stars Natalie Portman, Tessa Thompson, Oscar Isaac's got a really great cast. Uh, the basic premise of the story is that an expedition of scientists enter a mysterious area known as Area X, where basically the, the normal laws of nature don't apply. Uh, and I think it was Chris on a recent episode of the show was talking about some creative clashes behind the scenes where producer David Ellison uh, saw, I guess, negative reactions to an early test screening of the movie. And he was worried that the film might be, quote, too intellectual for average audiences. So he was trying to essentially get uh, Alex Garland, the director who also directed Ex Machina recently, to change the ending of the movie and to reshape Natalie Portman's character to make her more sympathetic. But uh, Scott Rudin, who is a huge big time producer who's also working on this movie ended up backing Alex Garland's original vision. And ultimately they sort of won out and the movie was able to stay as it is. 
Um, so in a new interview with IndieWire, Alex Garland has addressed the uh, these clashes that have gone on. And he said, I completely ignore that aspect of it when he was talking about the, the feud behind the scenes. Uh, the way I approach these things is with transparency. I never bullshit fucking anybody about what my intention is. I say, here's the script. The script is not a pretend script. It's the actual script. Here are some visuals, too. The way I see it from that point is that if they agree to make the film, then it becomes like a contract. Importantly, that contract is not open to being broken later. That There's a creative agreement. If people do have a problem, and that's fine if they do, but the time to express that is early, not late. So that was his quote. It's pretty hard to disagree with him, I think, on that point, because especially if you if he presents the finished script and said and says, this is what I want to make. And somebody says, OK, go ahead. And then when he does that exact thing, if they get skittish about it later, that I mean, I definitely understand where he's coming from there. Um, I sort of also a little bit understand where David Elson is probably coming from. Uh, if the movie is maybe not quite as financially viable as he originally uh, anticipated it, you know, seeing a final cut of something is a little bit different than seeing it on the page. But, uh, I, I, you know, in nine times out of actually 10 times out of 10, I'm going to fall on the side of, let me see what the director wants to show yeah. us. And then we can judge it later. Um, if the movie does not perform as well, uh, you know, that's fine you know like it's not the end of the world and there are plenty but, but, of movies like problem. An... i gotta play devil's advocate here when you're a studio and you're spending i mean how much money is this movie probably it can't be that much i mean it's a paramount film i don't know the budget off the top yeah. of my head but it's not like a, a 300 million dollar you know it's not like a, a huge level thing it does have a, a significant amount of visual effects in it so it, it's not just it's not a nothing movie it's not a blumhouse uh micro budget film but um, but go ahead, Peter. What, what was your point? I, I mean, it's just uh, yeah, and I can't find a budget online. I just started looking. Um, but like, let's say it's like, you know, a hundred million dollar movie. Uh, that's a lot of money. Like if, you know, if only 20, if it only makes 20, 30 million dollars at the box office, you know, in the studio makes half of that. I, you know, I'm, I'm suggesting the worst possible scenario here. But right. Um, it's tough because. I love film as an art, but I also have to – I think we all have to understand that this is – the only reason they make this art is because it's a product that makes money. And um, at some point, like, when you make a product and you're, you know, you're you're using that product in test screenings before and, you know, it's not uh, performing the way that you had hoped it would – Usually you go back to the design and like, how can we make this so it's a better thing for audiences or, you know, for the people using the product. But uh, then I guess, you know, it becomes too many cooks and it becomes watered down and becomes, you know, as art, uh, not not as great in an right. from an artistic sense. So it's 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 a struggle. Yeah, it's a it's a battle as old as Hollywood itself. Yes. Um, and lastly, uh, I'm going to leave you guys with uh, half of my interview uh, with Star Wars creature designer Neil Scanlon. Uh, you guys have been enjoying the clips I've been playing from my interviews. So hopefully maybe we'll start doing that in the future. Uh, you know, when we do interviews, we'll, we'll run some clips on this podcast uh, more often. But uh, Star Wars creature designer Neil Scanlon started uh back with Star Wars on uh, Force Awakens, so he's responsible for that. Uh, he is the guy responsible for, for making those porgs. So the, the clip I'm going to play for you now is him talking about how the porgs were created and, uh, you know, give you some insight 
Uh, no spoilers, but we'll give you some insights into the creation of Star Wars Last Jedi's new, newest creatures. And uh, yeah, here we go. How many po- uh, practical porgs were actually created? Uh, I think all in all, there's about maybe about 30 or so wow. porgs. So, again, so different, different technologies to bring them. Yeah. So, uh, again, you know, you take, uh, you, you, we've seen the little pork that's sitting on the dashboard. Uh, that sequence is a moment of a much longer sequence that you'll see in the film. Yeah. Uh, for that particular sequence, we will have built maybe 10 or 12 porks. It's the same pork, but it's built in a different pose with a different facial expression, a different ability to do something. And so it's kind of like approaching it as an a practical animation. So we know, and there's a joy of working with Ryan, is that he had the movie in his head so clearly that he could say, I can do that with that shot, we can cut to this, that action takes place. And so, we, in other words, when a porg is standing up, that's you know, anatomically one shape, but as soon as he crouches down, we can't do that. We can't meld and weld our materials in such a way that nature can. So we re-sculpted and recreate a version, but we know there's a cut between it. So uh, every scene that you'll see in the porgs, Whichever scene it is, there will be multiple porks in order to shoot that sequence. Um, mostly uh, rod operated, they all had internal eyes, uh, internal mechanisms for their eyes and facial expression. Um, and that rod, each, each one had five puppeteers behind it. Uh, one either side doing the wings, one doing the head and the body, two doing the feet, and another person, if that's five, or maybe even six, doing facial expressions. Obviously, they're in green suits and they're removed. You yeah. don't really see them very much. We set each shot up like an effect shot almost, um, uh, and then um, and yeah, and the idea is, you know, they're, they're cute little characters, and and we're acute, acutely aware uh, that uh, it's a fine line to tread between making them too cute that you kind of you know the audience don't like it. Or not making them cute, cute enough that you kind of uh, you know uh, you know exclude a whole generation of, of, of other viewers that would yeah. children for instance. So it's it's a very fine line to, and I always you know sort of say that the porgs very much to me were uh, you know like like your pet dog you know puppy eyes. They've got an ability to be able to pull on your emotional strings, and so we were very aware that within the sequence that they we were hopefully able to do that to the audience. Yeah. Do, do they fly at all? Because they're birds. They right? do fly. They flutter. Uh, no, they're not fur. They're feathered. They're actually Paul is feathered. Okay. Five hundred feathers in each one. Wow. Yes. Put in one at a time. So, wait, how do you accomplish them flying? Is that digitally? They, digitally. Yeah. So there's a perfect example. So we're groundbound mostly. I mean, you, you know, you could make them fly. Uh, and use rod removal or process photography, blue screen or whatever. But there's a perfect example of what I'm talking about, which is where you might have a little ball fluttering around on the ground doing something, and then the moment he takes off, we would initiate the takeoff practically, and then CG will pick up and do the little flutter. We may even do the landing practically, but the bit in the middle is digital. You mentioned before, not in this interview, in a previous interview, that they're related to the caretakers? Yeah, we had a feeling that... um, uh, uh, the island would have had its, in a sense, exclusively uh, indigenous group population of, of creatures. That, that, like Australia, if one might say that, that yeah. there's no other DNA has made it to the island. And so um, all the characters that are creatures that you'll see uh, on that island, we felt should be have some form of uh, physical or DNA relationship. And so the caretakers, for instance, have feet very similar to a pool. Their bodies are not dissimilar to a pool. They're facially not 
that dissimilar to a portal. They're just another branch of, 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 of Darwinism of that yeah, particular yeah. island that had taken over, So, as are other things that you may see there as well. Yeah. So are you saying that ports can only be found on that island in this... That was our theory. That was our theory. Was that, that, that they will have a, you know they are they are there. Um, Although know. it seems like they come off that island, so maybe they possibly. Will, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the um, I'm sorry, uh, I lost my place. Uh, the when Ryan came to you and said uh, that he wanted to do something based on these birds on the the, the island. How did, how long until you got to that? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, what was the evolution? Yeah. So, of that? Um, you know, I, I, if you close your eyes, say the word porg, and I think, you know, it's very descriptive name, isn't it? A porg? It's yeah. a porg. It's like a ball or whatever. So, I, and Ryan was very clear that they, he, he uh, puffins uh, are, are natural to the island of Skellig. Um, which is the location that we shot on. Yeah. Uh, so those birds inhabit that island for several months of each year. So he, I think that's where the idea came to Ryan and, and, and the sort of engagement with that particular bird. So to him, a puffin with a seal and a pug dog was his verbal description to us. The great thing about Star Wars, uh, uh, we feel uh, about many of the strongest characters in Star Wars, take BB-8 or R2-D2, is that they're very simple silhouettes. A child can draw BB-8 and the world will know what that child has drawn. Yeah. And so we always approach characters like this with the same ethos. What we're trying to do is to create a very simple silhouette. And one of our concept um, uh, designers, Jake Lund, drew this sort of elongated uh, potato with two little legs sticking out the bottom and two big eyes with a little tail on the back. And Ryan came in and that must have been drawing 100 or whatever it might be that we had done of trying to, we always go sort of, what about this, what about that? And, you know, and it, it, we, we're trying to get to know what's in Ryan's yeah. mind. And he saw that one drawing and just um, in, in his really wonderfully endearing way giggled uh, with approval. And it was like that, we're on the right track. And so really, once we had that silhouette, then it was a case of, in a sense, filling in the middle and looking at things like that, like a puffin or an owl and or a dog and trying to pull together those sort of uh, things that uh, say uh, pull on your heartstrings or emote you or make you want to own one or have one yeah. or stroke one <laughs> all those things you know and you try and get the best of real nature you know that's where that's where you you, you can't invent that nature's already there it's just being sensitive to it and trying to put it together in a, in a, in a, in, a, in such a ways that people uh, would honestly, yeah, as I say, feel if you woke up one morning and saw one nesting on a branch outside of your garden uh, window, you wouldn't feel that that was that strange somehow. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's a pork. <laughs> well, just judging from the trailer, it looks like you've been successful. Yeah, sweet job. Thank you so much. And there you go. So uh, go see Star Wars Last Jedi. It is in theaters now. Uh, you can find more of all the stories we mentioned today on SlashFilm.com. Please go check out HT's uh, big roundup. She really covers the whole Fox Disney deal in in a uh, you know in a full way and probably answers most of your questions. You can find this podcast Slash Film Daily published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play. Overcast, all the popular podcast apps. If you have a question for us, send it to peter at slashfilm.com. Please rate and review this podcast on iTunes, and we will see you tomorrow.